On Monday night, I found police officers in the hallway. So wrote New York resident Daryl Bash. He explained the suite next to our condo is a very small studio, and the neighbors who lived there when we moved in fit the profile, young, professional, and private. That's why I was surprised when the new guy moved in. He was older. He didn't work. He was pleasant enough, but also awkward. His place was a disaster. When I left my suite, I'd sometimes see into his. Laundry baskets were stacked from floor to ceiling. A trail of debris began at his door and continued all the way down the hall. I'd sometimes find his cart in his backpack outside his door. We've always wanted to hold a floor party. We didn't. We never invited our neighbor for a coffee. We'd make small talk in the hallway, but I never learned his name. On Monday night, I found police officers in the hallway. More police arrived and someone in a suit. Someone must have complained, I thought. The police must have called a social worker. But then I heard them talk about the coroner. My neighbor died last weekend. They found his body on Monday. A police seal now secures his door. My neighbor is gone. So is the man who was killed by a falling tree limb in a local park last Friday. So is the man who was hit by a train near me early on Monday morning. Death surrounds me this week, even in a young community like mine. He writes, nothing might have changed if I'd invited my neighbor for a coffee. But I would have known his name. I might have known his story. Now I'll only know him as the hoarder next door. And that's no way to know a neighbor. All of us on some level, if there's some love or altruism or goodwill in our hearts, we want to have a positive impact in this brief life that God gives us between birth and death, this flashing moment that goes by so very quickly. We, we hope that we can have an impact, that we can have some influence, that we can bring some good, that we can hold somebody's hand or walk with somebody through something difficult, that we can provide some level of comfort or reassurance or care or healing in a lonely world of people who are suffering. So for followers of Jesus, if you want to follow him, how does he want us to influence our world? How does he want us to provide leadership within our sphere, whatever that looks like? How does he want us to influence and lead our families, our children, in our workplaces, in our ministries? in our churches, in our homes. We're going to read a passage in which Jesus talks about the world's way of influence and contrasts it with his own gospel way of influence, which he models for us. It's Luke, the 22nd chapter of the gospel according to Luke. I'll begin reading in the 24th verse. This is God's gospel. Also, we read, a dispute arose among them. That's the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. The Gentiles were the non-Christians, the non-Jews, the unbelievers. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. It was a euphemism. But you are not to be like that, instead, the greatest among you must be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. 
For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What do we see here? First, we see Jesus draw attention to the world's way of influence, the world's way of leadership, which is always, he explains, from the top down. He says, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. They, they, they influence by lording it over them, by exercising authority over. It's a top-down leadership model where you put your people on top to make sure that everybody below you serves you and does what you want. And don't be confused by that term benefactor. It was a euphemism then. It was the most despotic and corrupt of leaders called themselves benefactors. Uh, but it was all about them. Uh, even if they were tyrants. Uh, the main benefit was always the leader and the people who are in his inner circle, and everyone else is basically used to accomplish his need for ego. And religious people Jesus is exposing here, actually the, the disciples are exposing it themselves because they're the ones who wrote the Bible, and so this is there with their own permission. They look horrible. They're doing the same exact thing. They're arguing over which one is considered the greatest. Now, it's not even just arguing over who's better, but who does everybody else think is better? You know, if you can imagine Greg and Sam and Keith sitting around arguing over which of them's best. It's an ugly picture, but a dispute arose and they were arguing over who was considered the greatest. These are the 12 apostles here. Uh, religious people can be just as worldly. Religious people can be just as fixated. Followers of Jesus can be just as fixated on having authority and being on top and being seen to be the greatest. It's... it's it's no different than the pagans. It's still a top-down, authority-based model. And, you know, when I see a pastor, a fellow pastor, no one here, uh, but when I see a pastor who's having to pull rank and demand that he be respected because of his office, I see a pastor who has already lost leadership of his church. And he's already lost their respect because he's pulling rank instead of influencing them by being their servant. When I see a dad or a father or a husband pulling rank and demanding that people respect him because of his leadership role in the family. I'm looking at a, a father who's probably already lost leadership of his family. And the only way he's gonna get it back is not by demanding respect and obedience, but is by getting down on his hands and knees and fighting over the towel instead of fighting over the crown. Uh, it's the only way, and if you're there, and we saw, see 12 apostles here, who they're right there. They're, they're there. They've blown it. You know, the, the only way you're going to break free of that and regain any leadership and any trust, whether it's of your church, your family, your ministry, your co-leaders, your employees, is by getting down on your hands and knees and serving them. And if you serve them long enough without trying to control them, they will eventually regain trust in you. And you will find they will follow willingly and joyfully because they trust you. But, you know, if your Proverbs 31 wife can't see a field and buy it without your permission, then there's something wrong. You've got a top-down worldly model in your relationship. Um, we do it the same thing. The disciples are right there with the readers of, leaders of the Gentiles. And, and the way it functions is it becomes all about my need for self-advancement. Um, 
I need to justify my own existence. You know, we're no different from the apostles. If you're looking down at them, just let's look in the mirror instead because uh, we maybe have less opportunity because we're not like Jesus' top 12, uh, but, you know, we still are driven by a need to validate our existence. And there are all sorts of ways we can do it, but it's a powerful idol of the human heart, wanting to make a name for ourselves. Um, it's why, you know, Jesus says those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They're high officials, exercise authority over them. They're driven by the need to be greatest, the need to be someone in some corner. I remember when I was in high school, my goal was to be the most academically excellent and advanced student in my high school, in my graduating class. And, and sadly, I was number four out of 600 or so. Um, but I could tell you exactly why those other three didn't really deserve their spots, because they didn't take as hard of classes, they didn't have as many advanced placements, they didn't graduate with nearly as many college credits at University of Virginia as I did. You know, I was going to make a name for myself, because I stunk at everything else, I wasn't doing sports, you know, um, and so I tried to be smarter than everyone else, and it made me judgmental and ugly and narrow and angry and incredibly controlling with anyone who might threaten that. You can try to become important by political power or religious power, which we see with the disciples here and with the rulers of the Gentiles. Others seek to achieve that sense of self-importance through relationships, and so you make all sorts of compromises with your faith in order to make sure that you're loved and accepted and wanted by the people who, from whom you feel you need that love and acceptance and welcome. <coughs> Some of us may seek it through wealth, not just through money, but the things that money can gain us, whether it's the wardrobe or the investments or the house or the boat, oh, look where I can afford to live, everybody. You know, we're all trying to gain some kind of personal significance for ourselves through what we do because we're all afraid that at the end of the day we will be a zero or we will be viewed as a zero. Some seek personal validation to justify their existence by feeling needed by being helpful. This is the trickiest of them all because it can look so much like a servant's heart, uh, but it can still be incredibly self-centered and just masquerading as love. If you're helping people and taking care of them because it makes you feel important, it's still all about you, you know, because you're using their neediness to enable you to feel good about being the hero. It's inescapable. Our, our hearts, John Calvin said, are idle factories. You, even when we're doing the right thing, we can be doing it for all wrong reasons and not even realize it. You know, the Bible says our righteous deeds are filthy rags. Um, it's a very accurate statement. You know, this drive, it compels us to need to advance ourselves at other people's expense. Um, and it's really just a, another manifestation of this worldly notion of top-down leadership. I have to make myself something and I'm going to do that through whatever means I have at my disposal. So we see here, Jesus points out the world's way of leadership, which is all about authority and structure and being on top and claiming your rank and using people. Uh, the gospel way of leadership he presents here is something radically different. It is always from below, even if you're in authority. He says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, but you must not be like that. Instead, the one who rules must be like the one who serves. This means, you know, loving the way Jesus loved us when he went to the cross. Uh, 
Jesus sitting there suffering, saying to you, come and join me in suffering for the world. Join me in suffering for the, the salvation of the nations. Join me in suffering for the sake of the poor and the needy and suffering for the sake of my church and my kingdom. It's a sacred calling to suffer in order to help other people and to suffer on purpose and to sign up for that. It's always from below with gospel leadership, gospel influence, and it's from a, a posture of equality. Jesus says the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you must be like the youngest. And you're like, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in our culture because we idolize youth, but they did not. Uh, in their culture, the youngest was the person who did all the worst chores. The youngest was the one who was emptying out the latrine, who was cleaning the toilets, who was skinning and cleaning the fish and, and you know, putting the worm on the hook when you go fishing. They had all the worst jobs because they were the youngest. They had no power. They had no influence. They were the bottom of the totem pole. And Jesus says, if you're given a position of authority, whether as a business person, as a minister of the gospel, as a, uh, a parent or husband or leader or pastor, He's saying, you have to be the one doing the worst jobs. You have to be the one taking the lowest spot. You have to be the littlest of the little kids that gets the grunt work because that's how we serve one another is with this position of equality where there are no little people. We're doing the Lord's work the Lord's way. That means a posture from below with a posture of equality so there's no room for scorn, there's no room for belittling anybody, there's no room for demanding respect, there's no room to, you know, to, to do anything other than protect everyone's seat at the table and make sure that everyone's voice at the table is respected, whether they're right or whether they're wrong, because they are made in God's image and you're respecting God's image in them. And God is something we want to serve, so we serve God's image in other people, even when we don't necessarily like them because that's what Jesus did when we were his enemies. He died for us. This is a message here where Jesus is saying that true greatness lies in service to others. For who is greater, he asks, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Well, of course it's the one who's at the table, but he turns it upside down. He says, but I'm among you as one who serves. He, the Lord, the king, who gets down on his knees and washes the dirty, disgusting, sword feet of his disciples. Deliberately putting yourself under your spiritual siblings, following Jesus who saves the world by giving up power. It's, it's the opposite of what the world does. You know, the rulers of the Gentiles rule from above. It's all about power and authority. It's all about dominance. It's all about demanding respect. He's saying, now you... Get down on your knees and start serving people. You know, often when Christians talk about influencing the culture, we easily fall into a worldly top-down model of influence that's not the model Jesus gives us here. And certainly there is a place for Christian statesmen, Christians in government, Christians in authority in all different places. We want to be salt and light. But the way Jesus says ultimately you're going to change the world is not by getting your people on top and forcing all the non-Christians to act like Christians. You know, if you do that, they will hate us with good reason 
because we're using the worldly tools of power to manipulate people into doing what we think God wants them to do, and they will hate you. And often, Christians are despised because we have been very eager to use the force of governmental authority to try to get non-Christians to act like Christians when the Christians aren't even acting like Christians. And so, um, yes, we want to be salt and light. Yes, we want to be in influenced. Yes, we never park our, our faith at the door. And yes, there always, there's always that call to come and bring justice to victims um, wherever, in whatever stage of life they might be. But Jesus says, the way I want you, my followers, to focus, even if you are put in authority, is from below with this radical call to service. Not from being on top, but from being beneath. I look at who has had the biggest impact on my life and the, the one figure, the one being that has had the massive you know, train wreck of my life crashing into him and having to rebuild everything from scratch. The one who's influenced me more than any is Jesus. And I ask, how did Jesus influence me? Was it by standing over me and demanding to be Lord? Or was it because when I was his enemy, he died for me? When I was dirty, he got down and washed my feet. And that's what makes me love him as my Lord. Because he loved me as my Savior. You want to have influence? Serve. There's an extreme vision here for how the followers of Jesus are to lead. Um, it's a great legacy. I mean, when you look at the passage about the early Christians um, that we just read, you know, uh, Romans chapter 16, where Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, he greets a whole bunch of leaders, 30-some leaders. And uh, they were men and they were women and they were from every race and every tongue and every tribe. You know, uh, 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 Persis was a Persian woman, probably the only one in the church. Sam covered this text a few weeks ago. But what you notice is all these people that he's describing as leaders and greeting as leaders, what they're defined by is their, their service. Phoebe was a great help, he wrote. She was a deaconess, literally a servant of the church. Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives, he says, and they hosted a church. Mary worked hard, he says, and Andronicus and Junius were outstanding among the apostles. Urbanus was a worker. Tryphena and Tryphosa worked hard in the Lord. Rufus's mother was a mother. She mothered Paul. Timothy was a worker. Tertius and Emmanuensis, a scribe. Gaius opened his home. These leaders are all known not by being on top, making decisions, but being on the bottom, serving others and serving God. These were not religious consumers. They were Christians who, who were fired up for God and, and ready to sacrifice on purpose for other people with a radical commitment to Jesus. It's a holy calling here. In a, in a modern sense, we might consider these extremists. It's a sort of one of the poetic ironies of the gospel of Jesus that when, if you think that your salvation is up to you performing good works, you're going to have no power to do them and you're going to end up a slave. But once you see that Jesus rescued you and that what you do has nothing to do with it, it's nearly a response to his grace because he saved you on the cross fully, finally, and forever. And when that sinks in, you know what happens is you start wanting to serve Jesus. And you start finding the power to serve Jesus. 
and to walk with him and to sacrifice in order to honor him with your life so that at the end of your life, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. Now I put you in charge of many. Motivated out of a love for Jesus because of his grace. You know, we talk about extremism today and usually we have this like uh, left to right, you know, paradigm where on the one hand you've got atheism and secular disbelief you know, scientific materialism, there's only the physical universe, nothing else. And then on the other end, you've got kind of violent religious extremism. You've got like some of the more extreme settlers in the West Bank, and you've got the Hindu nationalists, and you've got, you know, Al-Qaeda and, and Islamic State. And, 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 and the, the thought as moderns frame it is, uh, you know, there's, you're always safe somewhere in the middle. You just don't want to take, everything's good in moderation, we say. Um, but that does not follow the paradigm we see here because it all depends on what you're being extreme about, what your core thing is that you take to the extreme. Um, the early followers of Jesus were not moderate in loving God and neighbor. They weren't moderate. They were willing to die for their faith. And so many of them did. The blood of the martyrs was, was the seed of the church through which it grew. Uh, you know, you think of the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union. They are extremists for the idea of um, civil liberty. And so they are so extreme, using the world's paradigm, that they will support somebody's right to stand in the street with a white sheet and burn a cross as an act of hatred. Um, but that's because what they're zealous about, what they're extreme about, is civil liberties, even the civil liberties of bad people to say bad things. Um, it all depends on what you're extreme about. You know, one of the most extremist religious groups on the planet are the Amish. And you know what? Nobody's worried about the Amish. They don't even have snaps and zippers. You know, they're, what, they're, what they're fundamental about, what they're, they're absolute extremists about is living a simple life and minding their own business and following Jesus with their lives. And nobody's threatened by that. It all depends on what you're extreme about. And if what you're extreme about is a God who died for his enemies, that gives you a foundation, not for extreme hate, but extreme love of your enemies and love for those who disagree with you and think you're wrong. That is a foundation which you can never take too far. Uh, what if we're extreme in our love for our enemies? What if we're fanatically gentle? What if you take personal kindness uncomfortably too far so that people wonder what you're really after? What if you're extremely understanding and single-mindedly generous militant in seeking the peace of your city and zealous with a fanatical commitment to love the poor and the weak and the marginalized and the unloved? What if the world doesn't need moderates in these things? When these early Christians heard what Jesus said and they took it to the heart, they outdid one another in serving each other from below. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his 1963 letter to a Birmingham him, jail responds to a group of white conservative pastors who criticized him and labeled him as an extremist. He writes this, though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Was not Amos an extremist for justice? 
Was not St. Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? Was not Martin Luther an extremist when he said, here I stand, I can do otherwise, so help me God, and was willing to go to his death for that? Or John Bunyan, who said, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. So the question, he writes, is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Jesus Christ was an extremist for love. He writes, there was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but they were big in commitment. He writes, they were too God-intoxicated to be intimidated. A radical vision to love as a servant from below on purpose because that's what Jesus did for us. How is it possible? It's possible to love this way because Jesus uh, describes here uh, the challenge. We have to be willing to be a zero in the world's eyes. We have to be willing to not be greatest. You know, Leonard Bernstein complained, or Bernstein complained that nobody wants to play second fiddle you know, everybody wants to be first violin. Nobody wants to play the supporting role. But what if all of us argued for a place to take the supporting role? How many voices would they come out and find the freedom to be themselves, to be honest, to not have to hide? How beautiful it would be when leadership then comes from everybody because we're arguing and fighting over who gets the lowest seat at the table and then watching Jesus move people up. It means being willing to take on shame. It was, you know, for the, the, the shame of recognizing our own selfishness. And, and if you really start radically serving people, not for your sake but for theirs, and for God's honor, then God will use that to show you just how selfish and hard your own heart is. I, I was reading uh, something from Derry, uh, Dr. Mary Poplin, where she did an extended visit with Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity in, in India, uh, dealing with the poorest of the outcasts who had severe medical issues. And she says, it's where I discovered the darkness of my own heart. You see, she was trying to care for a five-month-old infant who had severe deformities and was constantly ill and often very miserable. And Dr. Poplin always found ways to avoid feeding this one child. But, but one day it was unavoidable. She explains, she writes, when feeding time was over, the babies were falling asleep in their bassinets and I was getting ready to go. I glanced at the infants on my way out the door and I noticed that undigested formula was dripping out of this child's bassinet he had thrown up what must have been the entire eight ounce bottle. Looking around for someone to tell as I left, I saw no one in the infant area and the few adults in the room had their hands full with other children. So I decided with no little struggle to stay and clean up the mess. I put on my apron again, I lifted the baby out of his bassinet and helped him on my shoulder, held him on my shoulders, I began to gather the dirty sheets together to use them to wipe up the mess. And as I was cleaning, I heard a muffled sound from this infant that I was holding in my arms. 
tears were pouring out of this little boy's eyes. And the only sound he could make was a convulsive sob. And as I looked at him, I saw in myself what the prophet Jeremiah called the desperate wickedness of the heart. I realized I had approached this task with a spirit of resistance and impatience. I had thought very little, if at all, about this little child and about his needs other than to be clean. And as I threw the sheets into the laundry pile, I began to bathe this little misshapen body and I began to change his clothes. And afterward, I held him to myself tightly as I looked at him and rocked him and prayed for him. In a short time, he was asleep. And I must tell you that the moment I saw him weeping and realized the wretchedness in my heart, I knew it was my sin. There was no doubt in my mind that this is what Christ meant when he said, out of the heart come evil thoughts. I asked Jesus to forgive me. I asked Jesus to change me. And in those moments, as I rocked that little baby boy, I could feel Christ's work inside my heart, inside my spirit, just as surely if he were sitting right next to me. Often serving is precisely what God does to show us as he showed her just how selfish our heart is and to change us and to melt our hearts and to fill us with his love for little boys with big problems. When we find it hard to risk being a zero, we need to look to Jesus because he's giving us a kingdom. He says to his disciples, I confer on you now a kingdom just as my father conferred it onto me. The, the Greek tense here implies that they're already part of God's kingdom. He's, even if he's pointing them ahead to the day when he will make everything right. You know, here in Jesus, he gives us a kingdom and he does that by being a king who dies for us. A king who gives up everything in heaven in order to gain the one thing he wants most, which, which is you. Because he loves you. He says, I am among you as one who serves. That for us is not just our example. It's not just our model. It's our empowerment. You can't get down on your knees and serve a difficult, hard, difficult person unless you know that Jesus is behind you down on his knees and he's washing your feet while you're difficult as a person. That's the love of God that captures our hearts when we realize that, that he is everything we have and everything we need that enables us to do the hard work to confront our selfishness and ask God, Lord, give me the heart of a servant as you, Jesus, have served me and washed me and cleansed me and brought me into your family and given me a life and blessing and future that even death cannot take away from me. You, Lord, are my treasure. It's you, Lord, have treasured me. There was an NPR episode a number of years ago that focused on a, a woman named Sarah who was sharing her family's public fall from grace. She had grown up in a very wealthy and privileged family, an enormous house, beautiful clothes, expensive schools, country club memberships. Mom and dad both had Porsches. Her, her mom decked herself out with stunning jewelry. Sarah's dad was an upwardly mobile lawyer. And despite all the outward signs of success, though, the home life was marked by constant pressure to keep up the family's image. Sarah explains rules were very important. Etiquette was very important. 
my dad's insane temper could be set off by the slightest offense. When I heard his Porsche rumble up the driveway, every day when he came home, I would run and hide myself in, in, in my room. So because maybe today would be the day he found a candy wrapper in the sofa cushion. It was all about avoiding awakening the bee's nest inside him. But that glittering image came to a screeching halt one night. Sarah described the fateful day when her parents called a family meeting and explained that his father had gained most of his wealth by defrauding an elderly client who was disabled and unable to catch the discrepancies. He had purchased all of their splendor by robbing an elderly sick man with disabilities. They lost the Porsches, they lost their furniture, they lost their house, he lost his job, he was disbarred as a lawyer, permanently losing his career. They said to the children, we're going to have to start over. Their family friends all disowned them because they made them look bad now. Sarah's mother had to go back to work, changing sheets at a nursing home and serving as the janitor at their Baptist church. And yet in the midst of this death, the death of their security, the death of their wealth, of their achievement, of their identity, a most beautiful new life was actually hatched. Sarah explains, my dad instantly became better. He was happy. He chewed gum. He had never chewed gum before. And he wasn't such a jerk all the time. And mom, her transformation was amazing. She started packing bags, lunches for homeless people who lived under a bridge. She went to Rwanda during the genocide in order to serve those who were in harm's way. She even let a homeless guy named Earl live with us once. He was a fugitive, you know. But who are we to judge? <laughs> who are we to judge, really? See, when they had to justify themselves before the watching world, they were miserable. They lived in fear and anger when they lost it all but had Jesus, they gained a joy that they never knew was possible. Friends, that's my prayer for all of us, that we would have Jesus even if we have nothing else. Let's pray.